What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got a hella special guest. Don't really know who he is, but man, I got to respect anybody who's in the fucking strength and conditioning game because it is a fucking grind. So my man, Logan Jones, he is a strength and conditioning coach for a professional baseball team. Um, one of our first strength and conditioning coaches that we've had on the podcast. So really excited to, you know, hear the ins and outs and, you know, the actual lifestyle of what it takes um, to be and to get to where you are, my man. So for those individuals who have no idea who you are, could you please tell us who you are, my friend? Absolutely. First and foremost, Adam, Chris, thank you guys for uh, for having me on this morning. It's an honor uh, always to uh, meet individuals as yourself and, and kind of uh, I'm excited to dig in this morning. Um, but quick, quick hitter here, uh, Logan Jones. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, actually Zebulon, North Carolina, small town outside of Raleigh. I uh, went to school in Greensboro, North Carolina, so a couple hours west, played college baseball there, got my degree, my undergraduate degree in exercise and sports science and health science. Um, following my graduation, I did a couple of collegiate internships, one at the University of Kentucky, one at Wake Forest University, worked with their baseball programs, um, worked with volleyball programs. And at Wake Forest, I worked with women's soccer and, and a handful of other smaller uh, teams as well. And uh, concluding that time in 2018, January of 2018, I started my time here with the Arizona Diamondbacks. As you mentioned, um, a Major League Baseball team, we compete in the NL West of Major League Baseball. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was telling you guys before we hopped on here, like one of the best decisions of my life so far to, to take part and join our sports medicine performance team here in Arizona. Um, and this season has absolutely looked different because of the COVID restriction and, and so on. But, uh, but yeah, I'm excited to, to kind of dig in with you guys this morning. Yeah, man. So like, we're going to just shoot it right at you. What is the life of a professional strength and conditioning coach? Because again, baseball, as we said, is a different beast where you guys, I thought honestly, it was 181 games, but apparently I'm wrong on that. That just tells you how much I pay attention to baseball. But baseball in itself, one, those games last three hours, if not longer. And then you got to do it, as you said, almost like five to six times a week. So what is it like in season, preseason, postseason, what is your life like, my man? Life, let's talk about life as professional and college. Gotcha. So I'll, I'll kick it off with, with like a, a college strength and conditioning coach first, since that's, that's where I got my internship experience. And I kind of was introduced to the order of operations, I guess you would say, um, as a collegiate athlete as well. So I think at the collegiate level, it kind of depends on the sport um, that you're working with there. Like generally speaking, especially your smaller schools, you're going to have a uh, split duty amongst many different sports. So it could be like a, a one fall sport, one winter sport, one spring sport at your larger universities or with your uh, big three. So football, basketball, baseball, uh, generally speaking, you have that's your that's your primary responsibility. And then you may have one other team. Uh, so I would say first and foremost, it kind of depends on what sport you're working with, but kind of off of that. Think the demands of working as a college SNC or in a lot of instances very similar to what it would be like at the, what it is rather in the professional uh, realm as well. I think a big difference in college is just juggling class schedules and uh, extra responsibilities of your athletes, um, their extracurricular um, responsibility in addition to their varsity sport and their training, their prep for that. Um, but ultimately, to be honest with you, I think it's what you make it. Um, yes, you're gonna you're gonna work some hours that are kind of quirky. You're gonna get up early. You're gonna 
you're going to get home late. There's going to be times where you spend less uh, time with your family and more time at work. Um, but I think, to be honest with you, that can be set across the board. Um, that's for sure the case in, in professional baseball as well. Um, and, you know, I can only speak to my experience, but ultimately I found if you, uh, if you really kind of to stick to your guns and prioritize and, and you're able to manage your time appropriately and make time for those things that are important to you, uh, it feels less like a grind. Yes, there, it is a grind. Everybody reaches a point where it's like, hey, man, like we need to do what we need to do today to get through the day and, and give everyone what they need to be successful and, and not much more than that. Uh, but with that being said, I think that there's there's always a lot of value in taking a positive outlook on it. So um, is that kind of what you're looking for from a college SNC right there? Yeah, and I think it's it's a great uh, way to put it too because it you'll notice as we talk further that you're managing your stress, you're managing your priorities in life because you're not just a strength coach. Uh, strength coaches can be husbands, wives, they could be fathers, they could be softball, rec league players. Like there's so many different things that you really attach yourself to. One other question about the college setting, because I know during a college internship, at least the one I did, I got my feet wet in a lot of different sports. With you being a baseball player, of course, your love was with baseball. That's what you did in some of your internships. Was there any other sports that you were introduced to that you may have not had meant much knowledge before and you grew in love with after? Yeah, Chris, great question. Absolutely. Um, I would say I would say I never had an opportunity to work with women's soccer, never had an opportunity to work with field hockey, never had an opportunity to work with track and field. Uh, I got all of those at Wake Forest. And uh, when I was at Kentucky, I also worked with women's basketball a little bit, um, which, which was another new one for me. So I, I think, I think um, when I think of my time at both the University of Kentucky and Wake Forest, I think that it created uh, some range and, and some agility maybe in just my ability to work with male sports, work with female sports, work with sports that I knew nothing about and simultaneously kind of educate myself on the demands of those sports. Um, and, and we'll kind of get into it more with baseball, I think a little bit later, but um, I'm, I'm big on just in, in training in general, like you, you have to understand the demand of the sport, the demand of the environment, uh, the level of competition, et cetera. These are just a few of the variables before you can ever be an effective strength coach to me, because it's not just about the, the sets and the reps, the volume, the intensity, uh, the frequency. It, it's not just about that stuff. Like there's, there's a human element of our, job. Um, and, and it, and it becomes even larger. I think, um, the lar the longer that you're in this, this field. Um, so to answer your question, yes, I, I was introduced to a lot of different variables, I think, and developed many different relationships with athletes and coaches alike, um, that I never would have had an opportunity to otherwise, if I wouldn't have taken a chance, taken a risk to go and do an internship such as either of those. Um, and, and ultimately I feel like it has propelled me and vaulted me to where I am today. Um, as we were talking before we got on here, I think that, that, uh, the timing worked out really well for, for me getting into professional baseball. And, and I always knew this was a passion and, and for, for me, like baseball by itself. And then you, you slap on top of that, my, my drive for development. And, and it kind of is who I am just in general as, as an athlete. And then now, uh, post athletic days, like as a coach, um, just big into that and, and education and, and growth and, and stuff like that. So, um, great question there and um is that kind of what you were looking for yeah man definitely so I want to kind of hit it a different angle because again you were an athlete now you're a coach 
what are the things that you still use to this day as a coach that you learned as an athlete? Or what are the things from being an athlete that you're not utilizing because you're like, hey, I really didn't appreciate that. And I think we could have optimized it this way. How are you, I guess, bridging that gap between being an athlete and now being a coach? Yeah, so I think you learn different skill sets. Uh, you learn time management. You learn what it means to work as part of a team, that something's greater than yourself. It's not about it's not about me. It's about you type uh, aura. And I think that for sure that took me a little longer to understand as I transitioned from being an athlete to being a coach. Of, because when, when, you're that, when you're an athlete, yes, everything is about you. It's about your development. It's about how you fit into the team. It's about your playing time. It's about what is my responsibility on this team. Um, and I think in rare instances, especially at like the high school and college level, do people really have a full appreciation of that? Um, it's probably not till you get out where you look back on it and you say, man, I really wish I would have had an understanding of what was what's, what's really important. It's the people. It's like the relationships that you build. I, I think back on my my college baseball days at Guilford College, and I think like very little about the wins and losses, about my ERA, about my batting average, about my fielding percentage. And I think way more about the relationships that I built with my teammates and my the coaching staff and the professors and uh, my friends that I, that are lifelong friends, lifelong teammates at this point. So um, I think those are the things that I've kind of carried over with me from being an athlete to now being a coach, um, both at the college level and in the professional uh, environment as well. And then I think that just learning from a lot of the mistakes that were made uh, in being a student athlete and, uh, and, and from there, um, trying to share those experiences with, with my athletes now, albeit they, most of our athletes now are not in a classroom setting. Uh, we have a handful of guys that are, they're like getting their undergrad simultaneously or getting their masters simultaneously as, as they're playing professional baseball. But generally speaking, there's not that same demand uh, of trying to juggle class schedules and, and exterior um, like educational type things like that. Um, so I think sharing my experiences with them in, in hopes of something landing, something sticking. So that way, they can flip that around and say, Hey, like, I trust this guy. This is my guy. I'm going to listen to what he's saying. And sometimes, yes, you need to make mistakes and learn from yourselves in order to kind of grow and learn. But I feel like if the, <laughs> the wiser that you are, the, the more you start to, to like learn from others experiences. So that way you don't have to make those same mistakes yourself. And sort of like what you said as, as an athlete, as an athlete, yes, it's important to focus on like development your skill set, understanding where you're at as a team, but it's also something much bigger than yourself, which is extremely important. But also, I think a sort of transition over to the coaching side of things, because it's more than just the strength coach. It's more than just the head coach. It's more than just the, the batting coach. What do you think, why is the strength and conditioning staff so critical in player development and in the aspect of the team itself? Yeah, Chris, uh, that's a great question. And I think, again, like I, I do see differences at the collegiate level, at least in my, my very limited experience at that level, and then more experience now working in professional baseball. I think um, at the college level, it's maybe a little more segmented out. Like if you're an SNC, your job is to obviously you're, you're in charge of the physical readiness of these athletes. So the, the strength training, the conditioning, speed and agility, uh, mobility, et cetera. And, and, and maybe you don't do as much in, in a lot of instances in the skill development or in the skill acquisition or 
on the skill refinement or injury management type deal. Um, I think that that's probably not the case everywhere. I did my internships at relatively large power five uh, institutions. So staffing, access to resources generally weren't issues. Um, now, my experience, division three college athlete, we didn't have the same access to resources. We didn't have the same access to staff. Um, so an athletic trainer, a strength and conditioning coach at a smaller school like that may be responsible for more than just SNC or more than just athletic training. Um, so I, I would say two things at the smaller schools where there's not as much staff or there's not as many people that are that are helping in the development of these student athletes. You have to have an ability to like impact in many different areas. So I would say <laughs> extremely critical role, S&C, at those, type, at, at those types of institutions. Transitioning now into professional baseball, um, again, I can only speak to my experience with the Diamondbacks. I don't believe that it's this way everywhere. Uh, we have a, a relatively large hand in skill development, skill acquisition type things where we do a lot of blending from the weight room to skill work. Um, we are out on the field a lot, like replicating movement patterns, using med balls, using aqua bags, using weighted balls, using throwing clubs, using these different implements um, to kind of bridge the gap between the weight room, between the weight room, sorry, and that what is skill work uh, in the batting cage, out on the field, in the bullpen, et cetera. So uh, as part of our organization, uh, SNC plays an extremely critical role because not only, are, not only are we responsible for the physical readiness, that's your traditional weight training, um, our conditioning, our speed and agility, our mobility, addressing the needs of our athletes in the weight room. But then there's a whole additional element of bridging the gap between the weight room and the field, working with our skill coaches, working with our pitching coaches, our hitting coaches, our infield coaches, our, our outfield coaches, et cetera, of creating drills and environments to learn for these athletes outside of the competition. So, and, and I, I feel like that's extremely important, but it's also extremely difficult given that we play a game every night at seven o'clock. Um, so it's, it's a little different. It's much different than that of a, of a, the demand of a college baseball season where maybe you're playing three or four games a week here. We are playing a minimum of six, sometimes seven games a week. Um, so it's finding unique ways to like kind of microdose these, uh, these opportunities to grow and learn and develop and give the athletes what they need. Um, and we don't give much more than what they need because at some point it starts to take away from their readiness every night at seven o'clock. Um, so to answer your question, Chris, I think it's very important. Um, I, I do think that the job responsibility does change depending upon maybe what organization you work with, you know, within professional baseball or what college you may work with, what level you work with or access to resources and staff, et cetera. So one final question on that topic would you say strength and conditioning, because you mentioned at a smaller school, there might the resources might not be as readily available as what it might be with the Diamondbacks or a big five Wake Forest, Kentucky school. Would you say it's just because money is limited? Is there still a lacking support for the strength and conditioning staff? Do you think it's... Um, I, I guess there's quite a few things that it could be. What do you think the the difference in that? Yeah, probably a little of all of the above. Uh, I think financially, for sure, there's a difference. Uh, I also think that from an educational standpoint, um, like at, at those smaller schools, it's of 
it's premium that you, you know, education takes priority. Like you're, you're going to class, you're like, sometimes there's limited uh, availability in class schedules, which then impact athletics, uh, not just strength and conditioning, but athletics in general. Um, and then from there, it's just priorities. Uh, it, like what's important, um, you know, in, in some instances, like strength and conditioning is a relatively new field. Um, there, there isn't the same history there as maybe there is with athletic training, for example. Um, so I think that while we may be a little behind the eight ball with that, I don't think that's an excuse. Um, it's just a hurdle. So I think that, that as you know, for those, for those strength and conditioning coaches or for those administrators that may be working at those smaller institutions where maybe money is, is, uh, a little tighter or maybe staff is a little smaller, et cetera. Um, I think that that at those, like in those environments, there, there just has to be discussion around what, what's important for our, for our athletes, our athletic department to continue to grow. And if we prioritize the development of our athletes, if it is a goal of ours to win as many games as we can, regardless of what level of, of competition we, we compete in, then we need to find a way to make these resources available to our student athletes, whether that's from a nutritional standpoint, whether that's from a weight training standpoint, um, if that means hiring an extra skill coach because we only have two and we need three or we need four, um, I think it's just prior, you know, developing or, or establishing priorities. And then off of that, what can we afford to do from a financial standpoint, but then making it happen too? like, I think that there needs to be an actionable step that, that is taken there. And, and maybe that that's a little farther behind those smaller schools than it is uh, maybe, as you mentioned at like a Kentucky or a Wake Forest, for example, or working in professional baseball. Yeah, but I think you nailed it spot on with the priorities because I think that'll run superior in almost anything you do, any field, any related field. And if if something's a priority, you'll take time or you'll take money and you'll put focus towards that. So let, let's go ahead, dive into priorities, I guess, of just the baseball realm, especially because that's your forte and that's what you're an expert in. How does training for baseball specifically defer from other sports? And I guess, I guess instead of taking that in a very narrow focus, I guess look at it in a broad way. And when you look at a sport, what are some key things that you want to first consider? And then how does baseball defer from those? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, I think just in general, regardless of the sport that you work with, regardless of the level of competition, uh, amateur, professional, whatever, I think that you have to, you, you do have to conduct a, a simple like needs analysis, like your standard, <laughs> hey, what's required of this sport from a, like from an athletic standpoint, from a movement standpoint, additionally, what's required of, from like in this environment. So when I think environment, I think where like lo geographic location, right? Like, are you, is, is it warm? Is it cold? Is it, are, is the air thin? Is it thicker? What's the humidity, et cetera. Uh, I think, um, additionally, I think frequency of games. So I think college baseball versus, or high school baseball versus college baseball versus professional baseball. Uh, you go from two games a week in high school to three to four in college to six to seven in professional baseball. So, um, I believe the training should look a little different level to level. Yes. The demand of the sport is the same. Um, the biomechanic, the biomechanical demand of throwing a baseball or of swinging a bat are the, are the same. Yes. But there are differences in uh, workload and frequency um, and training age uh, and, and obviously biological age as well. 
Um, there aren't too many 40 year old men playing high school baseball. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of that plays uh, additionally. So I, I start there just looking at, Hey, what are these external variables that are for the most part outside of our control that could impact our training environment or our competition environment? So we'll just call that the demands of sport and environment. Okay. So from there, um, when looking at the demands of the sport, in order to play baseball at a high level, you have to be very comfortable uh, working on one leg, um, you know, throwing with one arm for the most part, swinging from one side of the plate for the most part. Um, but I would say, you know, a good 95% of baseball is played on one leg for sure, whether you're running, whether you're swinging, whether you're throwing. Um, so I think that it's very important that we replicate and prepare for those demands in our training. Um, so a lot of our training is, in general is going to replicate the, the demand of operating on, on one leg or with one arm for the most part. Um, additionally, on top of that, there's the, there's the rotational demand of, of baseball, um, which is not replicated across the board in, in some other sports. Um, there are some that are very similar, softball, tennis, golf, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that, that that layers on an additional element of now we have to look at like the mechanical demand of what it means to rotate. That's, that's rib cage mechanics or placement, you know, and, and mechanics. That's what's happening at the hips. That's how are the two connected and working together through uh, a solid core program. It's, it's what's happening in the lower half that could be affecting the upper half as we look at the demand of like the skill of throwing a baseball or the skill of swinging a bat. Um, and then, and then I, I just think on top of that, you take in consideration the, the, like the, the overall workload. So what, how do these things change as an athlete fatigues? Um, so like, I, I would, I would argue that uh, the first swing in the, in the batting cage of, of the day looks a little different than maybe the, the last or a swing maybe in, in game. Um, and we've seen that a lot with just players development in general, obviously it starts at, at the foundational level in a controlled environment and practice far before it, it translates over to competition. So um, there are some differences in, in this. So we just take into consideration many different variables, most of which I would say are outside of our control. Some are within. So we look to control the things that we can, um, especially when we're looking to make change. Um, we're trying to start at the ground level and control as many variables as possible when we're looking to make a mechanical adjustment, when we're looking uh, like in a rehab type environment. That's why we have extensive, uh, you know, return to play throwing programs, return to play running progressions, return to play uh, like swings in the, in the cage that takes you out onto the field for BP, which takes you into a live bait BP, which takes you into a, a sim game, which then eventually takes you into a game progression. So um, that's a, that's a lot of information right there. So I, I would just say, we'll cut it with that. But I would say, generally speaking, you just look at and assess, complete a needs analysis. That doesn't mean you have to sit down and, and write down all of these. Uh, it's not, a, you know, we're not, we're not taking a test, but you have to have a thorough understanding of what it is that it's important for these athletes to do. In, in our case, our, our guys are getting paid to pay baseball. They're not getting paid to be weightlifters. They're not getting paid to do uh, mobility with us in the outfield. They're getting paid to pay to play baseball. Um, and I think that if we keep that in the forefront of our mind, our job is as player development staff in our organization is to produce players or put them in an environment to succeed in hopes of our big league team winning as many games as possible and, and ultimately winning the world series. Uh, that that's our end goal and whatever we can do along the way to help these players or our staff uh, and encourage that same common goal and pull the rope in the same direction or row the boat in the same direction rather. Um, 
that's kind of our primary responsibility there. So I'm interested because right, the whole form of periodization stemmed from a lot of, you know, Olympic sports and specifically sports in general of baseball, basketball, stuff like that. So how are you guys, I guess, framing that plan at the preseason going into the season and hopefully again, the postseason? what are the workload demands and how do they change? And how are you embracing that uncertainty of managing fatigue with all of these players that you have on your baseball team? Yeah, it's a tall task. I'll, I'll say for sure. I think that's an understatement. Um, demands uh, throughout the year are much different. So you, we have our, we have what would be like our, uh, you know, our, our off season. We'll, we'll start like here coming up in a few weeks, we go into the off season. From there, we transition into like, if there's an early off season, there's a late off season, then we transition into a, into a preseason. In preseason, we go into a spring training type environment, spring training environment, you go into an in-season mode. Um, so I would say the standard uh, linear periodization that you learn about in, in, the, in the NSCA textbook, for example, it, it takes more into effect, in my opinion, the way that we do things with Arizona Diamondbacks. That's more of an off-season model for us uh, because, generally speaking, we have variables that are, that are controlled for the most part. Athletes aren't in competition for the most part. Uh, there, there are a handful of guys that pitch in the Arizona Fall League or that play winter baseball. Um, so for those guys, it may look a little different. But on, from an, like speaking on an annual plan, a linear model is, is basically utilized for the most part with our athletes in the offseason. Um, and, and that's the case uh, because of what I spoke on with, with the workload demands. As we get into a late offseason, uh, preseason type deal where maybe it's January, uh, we're reporting to spring training in, in three or four weeks. Skill uh, begins to take the, 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 the emphasis, the priority, and, and then kind of from there, um, our weight training is become second. Um, and, and because of that, there's not as much periodization. Um, it's more of making adjustments and adapting on the fly. Um, we go in with a plan, certainly. We have a lift, um, and we have conditioning written up. We have speed and agility. We have a plan to operate, like a framework to operate off of. Um, but then from there, it's basically our job is making these adjustments, adapting um, and create, you know, having some creativity, some range to give the athletes what they need. Um, and, and from there, it's it kind of ebbs and flows as we go into an early season. And and, you know, then basically we have different points in the season where we've seen based off our research that injuries are generally peaking. Um, we see it right out of spring training increase in workload. We see it right around the all-star break time, increase in workload. And then we see it again towards the end of the season. Um, so it kind of ebbs and flows. And, and uh, so, yes, we do implement like deloads or, or unloading phases as we go through a full season, very similar to how you would in a, in a linear periodization model. Um, but it doesn't look, it, it's not as simple uh, in our, in our environment because of the demands as, you know, going, eight, six, four reps as you go weeks one, two, three with a deload. Um, that's more of an off-season model for us, but that doesn't mean that we don't try to periodize uh, other variables as well, like throwing programs and uh, conditioning protocols and stuff like that because we're big on, on tracking just overall workload management and we, and we crunch some numbers, calculate acute to chronic workloads, et cetera, um, to help aid or guide our decision-making of what an athlete needs from a skill standpoint. So that could be from an actual rep standpoint on the field or in a training environment where we're trying to 
uh, judge what an athlete may need from a weight training standpoint or from a conditioning standpoint, um, et cetera. Does that answer your question, Adam? No, it answers it very well. And I asked this because, you know, a lot of my PhD work is on auto-regulation, flexible nonlinear periodization. And I think what you said there, when the off-season, right, you have a lot more control because the demands of the sport are low. So we can dedicate more time to the weight room as, you know, preseason and in-season occurs. There's a lot more variables that are uncontrolled for and We can't say that, you know, he's playing maybe eight innings and the other one's playing three innings. But again, his intensity factor might be totally off. What I think I'm really interested in knowing is, at, again, at this professional level, I would assume you have access to a lot of tools. What are you utilizing to measure readiness or measure some sort of objective analysis to say, hey, you're good. We can keep going in this fashion or, hey, you're not trending so well. We need to go in this fashion. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'd, I'd say that that's a difficult one because I, I feel like a lot of our feedback is subjective, uh, just in nature of, of we, we, we try to gather as much information as we can build those relationships because off of the relationship that's built, uh, the communication is had and, and we're able to trust what they're telling us and they're able to trust what we're telling them or what we're suggesting or what we're guiding them, what direction we're guiding them in. So a lot of it is subjective um, in our environment, to be completely honest with you. And uh, and off of that, we do run acute to chronic uh, ratios uh, with primarily our, our pitchers. So that's like quantity of pitches in game, quantity of pitches in the bullpen, quantity of pitches in a throwing program. For example, um, we calculate uh, overall yardage on the base paths for our position players. Um, we've dabbled in uh, gathering just number of ground balls fielded, number of throws made, number of swings taken in a spring training type environment um, for our position players. So I think that, that the value in all of these things is just, they're just pieces of the puzzle. Um, I think like trying to be objective here, just look, taking these different variables and putting them, laying them out and say, look, this is the information that we have paired with the subjective information of what's coming out of their mouth, what we see with our eyes, our opinion. Um, oh yes. Perfect. It lines up like, we feel we were convicted in our decision to do X, Y, and Z, or no, it doesn't line up. And it, like, maybe that's an additional conversation. Maybe that's like where we go and dig a little deeper. Like, Hey man, like you, you say that you feel good, but we see otherwise in your body language, we see otherwise in the numbers. Um, and, and in some instances they have a lot of autonomy and in, in their program and their routines, et cetera. And in some instances, if we feel like it's a health risk, we'll say, Hey man, like we get it, but you're, you're taking, you're going to have the day off. Like you're not, you're not in the lineup today, et cetera. Um, and our organization does a great job of prioritizing rest and recovery, regeneration in between those bouts of work. Um, just trying to take a proactive approach as opposed to a reactive approach in, in injury management. I don't, I don't like the term injury prevention just because I don't feel like we prevent injuries. I think, I think we're just, we're workload managers. And because of that, we can do everything correctly. And so-and-so blows out and gets hurt. Like that's just, that's the nature of, we're already at risk throwing a baseball to high velocity uh, rotational forces through, through the shoulder and the elbow and, and the, the thoracic region, the hips, et cetera, like at very high velocities. Um, so we're already at risk. We do everything correctly. We're still at risk. So I think that taking those things and, and, and considering all of them and then making smart decisions with the data that we have paired with that subjective um, 
information that we're getting from them or that we're seeing or, or hearing, you know, I think is, is, a, is a healthy place to operate because that way you have an, uh, an abundance of information. Now you can make an informed, educated decision. No, I think that's how it almost should go. That subjective information um, doesn't usually lie. And objective, sometimes numbers can lie. So now I ask you the question, if you had to choose one or the other, what would you choose and why would you choose it? And I'm assuming that you're going to choose subjective. And if that is the case, what type of questions do you typically ask of your athletes? Yeah, you guessed it. Uh, I, I would I would say in a professional baseball environment, I would guess subject or I, I would choose rather subjective. Um, and, and that's just because I think it's instilled in us at from day one onboarding as part of this organization, as a staff member or as a player, the importance of transparency and being honest and developing the relationships like we're big on team ability. And, and to us, that's like the ability to lead or the ability to follow. Um, so like literally taking an all inclusive approach to like, Hey dude, I, I love you. I want what's best for you. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes you may not want to hear what I have to say for sure. Sometimes I may get mad at you. Sometimes you may get mad at me. Perfect. But understand that I have what's, what's in your best interest in mind. Um, and I think from there, we, we just ask the questions of like, Hey dude, like, how are you feeling today? What can I do to help you today? Um, or uh, taking uh, some information to them. Hey, we've noticed like your, your workload's a little high. You look tired, dude. Like it's the next to last week in the season. Like, what do you think? Should we, you know, do you want to hit the lift right here? Here's what, what we have written up. Do you want to make some adjustments to the, to the volume, the intensity, maybe like maybe we go a little lighter on the load standpoint. Maybe we find an alternative loading strategy. So I think that there's just a lot of back and forth, uh, communication conversation that takes place. And it's not always the same question, but it's, it's asking that generally speaking, if I had to pick one question to ask, it would probably be like, Hey dude, what can I do to help you today? Uh, Cause generally that's going to draw out some information of if they're tired and you have that relationship built, they're going to tell you they're tired. If they stayed up late and their family's in town, their girlfriend's in town, they had a couple of beers. Like they're, they're probably going to, they're probably going to give you that information because they know that, that you have their best interest in mind and you can make that adjustment on the fly to get them ready to go tonight. Um, and, and tomorrow doesn't matter because we have a game tonight and then we'll go to tomorrow when, when, when that time comes. So we operate uh, for sure on a day-to-day -day basis just because of the, the high frequency of, of competition of games and, and it happens at a high level too. So um, a couple of questions there. I know I didn't, didn't answer it, I guess, directly, but I think that, that uh, it's not always the same question that we found to be effective. Yeah. And I think what you were to, to try to summarize that, and it's a big key thing that we're sort of touching on is relationships. Relationships is going to be extremely vital in the success of sports, because if you can't trust that person next to you, that's blocking with you or the one that's fielding next to you, or the guy that's batting after you, if you can't trust that coach, like everyone has the same goal. It's to win that world series title. And as long as we keep that on the main focus, then that's going to be extremely helpful, but to sort of trans transition away from the, the training for baseball into something that I guess could be controversial. Perhaps you can touch on if it's not, or if it is mobility versus stability, how do these two differ and how do these two come into play when looking at a training program for a baseball athlete? 
so I, I do think that there's a lot of discussion around the topic of <laughs> what, what, what's more important. What can you train? What can't you train? Uh, does one lead to another? Uh, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that black and white. If I'm being completely honest with you, I, I will, I can speak to our, the way that we do things here with, with the D backs. I, I, I do believe that proximal stability leads to distal mobility. So in, in layman's terms, if you have a strong and stable core, for example, it could lead to improved ranges of motion under control at the hip, at the ankle, uh, in the T-spine region, at the shoulder, et cetera. So I, I don't know that it's, it's definitely not as simplistic as, as that, but I will say that, that we, we train both um, in, in short. We train stability first and foremost, in hopes that that creates some mobility, some usable range of motion. We don't care about range of motion, passive range of motion that's not utilized in a skill environment or that's not required or not needed in a skill environment. Um, that could be controversial, but the way that we see it is, if you first, if you can't control the range of motion, if you're not strong in the ranges that you have, it's an injury risk. Um, so if a, a pitcher in full layback, full external rotation, weak in this position, you're going to get some anterior displacement gliding at, at the shoulder. Uh, it's going to put the elbow at risk. Um, if you're if you're working through ranges of motion in competition that you can't control and that you're not strong in, 100% it's an injury risk. Um, so in an effort to be proactive as a verse, you know, as, as as opposed to reactive in this, um, we start with a sagittal stabilization core program. Um, it's it's the the concept of core pressurization. We have a robust core program that starts with uh, just the ability to breathe, pull in air and blow air out. Um, respiratory mechanics from there, we work on pressurizing uh, like the abdominal region. So that's like the eccentric contraction of your obliques, of your transverse abdominis, et cetera, uh, pelvic floor. Um, and then from there, we'll move more in the frontal and transverse plane. So we'll start with a good dead bug, for example. Like if you, if you can't lay on your back, and pressurize in the abdominal region, probably not going to be able to do it when you stand up, uh, when you're moving through different ranges of motion, certainly not going to be able to do it when you got on the field and, and all you're focused on, all you're concerned with is executing the task at hand. Um, so we'll start with a simple dead bug progression. We call it our, our sagittal stabilization core program. Um, from there, as I mentioned, we'll move more in the frontal transverse plane. So for us, that's hitting some oblique in the frontal plane that might be uh, different plank variation, side planks might be off press variations um, could be different offset, uh, like offset loading carries, a farmer's carry, a suitcase carry, a bottoms up carry, et cetera, where we're kind of offsetting center of mass. Um, so again, core pressurization is premium in, in that regard. And from there, you take into consideration the rotational demand of uh, sport. So we need to be efficient at rotating. We also need to be efficient at uh, deceleration. So we need to we need to be strong and, and convicted in our anti-rotation exercises too. That's a lot of those ones I just mentioned for the obliques or, or anti-rotation um, front plank dead bug. That's going to be an anti-extension uh, exercise. And um, so basically, we're looking to build the breaks, the decel the the deceleration pattern um, of throwing of swinging a baseball bat because our body is only going to allow us to accelerate as much as we can decelerate. Otherwise, we'd blow out. Otherwise, we'd injure ourselves. Um, so if we can build a robust um, core program, that's our stability. Our hope is now we can work through ranges of motion at those more distal joints, 
at the hip, at the ankle, at the shoulder, in the T-spine region, et cetera. Those are just to name a few. We're now able, now we're able to better utilize a range of motion and be strong and fluid and efficient in that movement pattern. Um, now we would only isolate a mobility drill if we feel like a guy has sufficient stability primarily because otherwise we're just cranking in a range of motion that we either don't have. Uh, we, in some instances we could be banging <laughs> bones together or whatever, and, and we're just trying to crank in a range of motion. So we always encourage uh, like avoiding any pain, pinching, burning sensations when we go through our mobility drills. Um, Cause that just can be a solid indication to us that um, maybe they're not ready for that drill or for that uh, exercise. So um, last thing I'll kind of touch on, that was, a, that was a lot of information there. Last thing is uh, in regards to the core, um, we, we hit, not, that's not just the abdominal region to us. Like that's, that's the midsection. So that's going to be like gluteal region, hamstrings. Um, it's going to be hitting different posterior chain exercises as part of that core program. Uh, so that way that we're, we're highly functioning in the ranges of motion that we need. Um, and we're optimizing uh, structure because structure dictates function and, and the other way around to function is certainly going to dictate the structure. We see that with different adaptations and, and throwing a baseball, et cetera. So a lot of information there. Sorry. A lot, a lot to dissect. No, never apologize for one and two. No, that was a great overview because I think a lot of people need to understand that um, you, right, you can't have mobility without stability or the vice versa. Um, because I think what I really appreciate what you were saying is, right, your body's only going to accelerate as much as you can kind of decelerate because you can't have one of the two. If you're going to have more, more than likely you're going to develop some sort of injury. And I would ask you, what are your go-to? I know you said you don't, we can't prevent injuries, but what are your go-to exercises for utilizing some sort of injury prevention program, specifically for baseball and maybe even specifically for your pitchers? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think generally speaking, if, if we just want to make a blanket statement here, I, I think that a lot of injuries happen when we're decelerating. So for a pitcher, that may be like in, like as he goes into pronation, right, his follow through as he gets a little bit of horizontal adduction across the body, um, posterior shoulder becomes a little at risk, like uh, cuff muscles become a little at risk. And uh, we see the same thing with like lower extremity injuries in our position players for the most part. Generally, our hamstrings, our adductors, uh, stuff that we see more of happen in a, in, in a pattern that when we're decelerating. Um, so we look to build, we just call it build the brakes. So we're utilizing different drills to optimize stability and movement patterns that are specific to baseball. So generally we use, uh, I don't know if you guys have exposure to like aqua balls or aqua bags, it's basically a, a, just view it as a med ball. That's it's full of water. You can add water, take away water to adjust uh, like the intensity of a drill um, and your ability to like shake or, or perturbate this ball will increase or decrease the intensity of the drill as well. Um, so basically an example would be um, we're taking a pitcher, he's in single leg stance, gathered over the rubber, getting ready to make his forward move towards home plate. Okay, so in that single leg stance, we're doing different things with an aqua ball to challenge his single leg stance, building stability from the ground up. Okay, so that's it, the foot and the ankle. Um, that's going to be building the ability for the for the glute and the front side ab wall to lock in the pelvis, create that, that strong hip-loaded position to now drive down the mound. 
And as we make our forward move down the mound, we can do different things, different uh, like motions with the aqua ball to challenge his forward move and his front side stability. Because now as his force transfers from the backside to the front side, now we have to be able to decelerate as our, uh, I guess, as the momentum moves from the ground up through our hand, up through our arm into the baseball, baseball releases out of our hand. Now it's all about the, uh, the, the pattern of decelerating. Um, so we look to build the brakes as much as we can. That's from a, from a skill standpoint and just in a general strength and conditioning realm uh, in the off season, for example, when maybe the skill demand isn't as high. Uh, we'll utilize different things where we're perturbating core movements. Maybe a guy's doing a bear crawl. We're perturbating it. We're moving him around. Maybe he's doing a, a power off press. We're perturbating the band, perturbating the, uh, the cable. Um, maybe it's something where we stand up on our feet, where we throw a med ball, and then we stick the catch of the med ball, where that way we're building a brace, a deceleration, a stiffness that is going to serve as our brakes. Uh, when we need to basically execute a high velocity movement, which is throwing a baseball or swinging a bat. Um, so without diving too much down into the specifics, cause I, I don't think we have time for that. And I think it may be over, you know, it, it, it's too much detail in my opinion. I think the, the overall mantra here is we look to build the brakes because as I mentioned, we're only going to, our body is only going to allow us to accelerate as much as we can decelerate. And that's the case because our, our, our bodies are smart. Like we're not going to, we're, we're, it's not going to allow us to injure ourselves over and over and over again, because we're not able to decelerate. So we see the guys with lower velocities, the guys who have a higher risk of injury, higher incidence of injury, higher frequency of injury. Generally speaking, those are the guys that are weakest in our deceleration, bracing, uh, stiffness, building the brakes type patterns or type exercises. Um, we've seen a high correlation of that. Now, this might be an inner question on my end, but how are you exposing these weaknesses? Because, again, it seems are you guys just kind of eyeball effect? Or are you going through some sort of protocol? I'll be like, OK, hey, you're weak here. We need to go through this exercise, because from what I hear is a lot of these exercises are very specific to these specific positions, which I think is really credible. But I've also heard, hey, man, they do that enough on the field. Get them away from that and put them in different situations in the weight room. But it seems like you guys aren't doing that, which it is what it is. Whatever works, it works for that individual. And I think there's no such thing as a good way or a bad way. But I ask you, how are you finding these weaknesses within these players? That's a good question, Adam. So so just probably like everyone else, we have a, an assessment, uh, like a passive range of motion assessment that just serves as like baseline foundational. We gather the numbers. We, we reference those numbers when we see things with our eyes or when we hear things. Um, we have an excellent skill staff, an excellent sports medicine team, experience, a lot of experience to, and, and watching just movement patterns outside of the skill set of, of playing the game of baseball, but just watching the way that the human body moves. Um, and so I think it, it's, a, it's a combination of all of the above. It's, it's utilizing experience, uh, which not everyone has. So then if you don't have any experience, it's referencing your objective numbers that can, that can serve as like guidance, I would say. It's, it's certainly not the it's certainly not the solution to the problem, but it, it serves as like a piece of the puzzle. And then it's it's watching how a guy moves in the weight room. What does he look like when he does a, a bilateral squat? What does he look like when he does a pistol squat? We have a lot of guys that are really good at operating on two legs. They can deadlift the house, squat the house. But when you give them a med ball and tell them to hug it and do a pistol squat, and we got a problem. So uh, I, I think that that is the emphasis for us is what is going to transfer over to 
the skill of playing baseball. Um, we're going to choose the exercises, especially in season because our time is limited. We're going to choose the things that, in our opinion, that have the highest carryover, the things that are going to help you tonight, the things that are going to help you tomorrow, the things that are going to help you next week. If we want to add some weight, put on some size, build a, a larger foundation of strength in the offseason, sick. Let's do that because I think that that's the, that's the point in time where that that's appropriate. Um, if, if we're trying to do that simultaneously with being in our best self for a starter every fifth day, may or may not be doable. Uh, so it's kind of like we find what this threshold is, and yes, we kind of flirt with it. We, we toe the line, if you will, but we don't cross. And we'd always be, rather be on the more conservative, and we can always add more. Sometimes it's too late if you try to pull back. Um, if the guy blows out because we did too much, our, our thing is do no harm. Okay, like first no, rule number one, do no harm. Like if, if you don't do anything else, don't F them up. You know what I mean? Like that's legit. That's that's the number one rule. So um, I, I guess I will clarify something that you said. Like we, we aren't doing a lot of in season now. We aren't doing a lot of rotational high, high, rotational exercises at high velocity in the weight. So, yes, to your point of you get a lot of that on the field. You get a lot of that in your skill work. You get a lot of that in the game. Absolutely. 100%. We're not slinging a bunch of weight or uh, med balls into the, into the center block wall in the weight room all of the time. Now, if it's a CNS prep, you know, six to seven minute, let's get ready for your game. It's part of your warm up type deal. Yes. We'll sling some med balls. We'll get ready because you do have to prepare those rotational uh, patterns, the, the demand of a, at a higher velocity before you got there and throw. Absolutely. Um, but in more of a training environment where we're, we're trying to develop, um, so not in a prep type type realm, but in more of a development type realm, uh, it's more I, I would say for sure it's at lower velocities and it's working through movement patterns that our goal is eventually to translate to higher velocities. So in some cases, it's an isometric um, and, and we're, we're holding a certain position. We're shaking the aqua bag here. We're shaking it here. We're ripping it side to side, because if you can stabilize on one leg, stabilize in a position that we feel like you struggle to own, if you can't own that position. Now, all of a sudden, you can own it with an aqua bag. You should be able to own it body weight standing there with a, with a glove on your hand and with a ball in the other hand. Um, doesn't always transfer that easy. It, it, it's not a linear model, as we discussed on earlier. But in our opinion, the foundational, the foundational step is identifying those movement patterns that, that are deficient, that, that need to be addressed, starting with the most simplistic things and never doing anything that's going to cost them their ability to play tonight or be ready tonight. Um, so we do some rotational stuff in season in the weight room. Generally speaking, it's at lower velocities. If it's at a higher velocity, it's usually in prep for the game. Yeah. And I, I think that's the most important thing that we're picking up in this general discussion is it, it's really all about playing the game. It doesn't matter about, it doesn't matter if they're benching 225 for 400 times. Like it doesn't matter. Like that's, that's not playing baseball. Um, and same with squatting. So if someone can't do a single leg movement, then in baseball, when you're on one leg, most of the time, you're going to be screwed. Even if you can bet squat three fifteen. like it, it doesn't matter. So we want to be courteous of you and your time though. We, we greatly appreciate you coming on and giving us some insight on how to train for baseball and what sort of the life of a strength and conditioning coach can be like in the college and professional settings. Go ahead, let our listeners uh, end on some closing remarks, especially where they can find you on Instagram or any other things. If you have any books or anything like that, 
I only have seen you on Instagram. Uh, actually, I think I, I saw your information on another podcast. So let us know where we can find you. Absolutely. Thank you guys. I, I think if I have just like one bit of information to leave with the listeners, I think it, it at the most foundational level, it's about the relationships that you build. It's about the people uh, trying your best not to lose sight of that, I think is, is one of the most important things because if you get too caught up in the X's and O's and lose sight of the human aspect of our jobs of sport in general, you're leaving a lot on the table. You're missing the boat in my opinion, um, because I think that we can always educate ourselves on the X's and O's. We can always introduce ourselves to the next uh, trendy uh, uh, anything in strength and conditioning and performance and sport, et cetera. Uh, but I think a lot of times there's, there's a lack of like continuing education on the leadership, on the communication uh, aspect of things. And I think that that's something that we're big on here with the Arizona Dimebacks is just uh, really pushing the importance of of the, of the relationships because we found that that's kind of the foundation in which uh, everything can be communicated. Like it, uh, one of my mentors said, like it, it doesn't matter what you know if or nobody gives a damn what you know if you can't communicate it, or it doesn't matter what you know if you can't communicate those things to your athletes. If they don't, if they're not picking up on it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter how, how smart you are from an, from a textbook standpoint if you have no practical ability to like implement that and, and introduce it on the floor and and for your athletes to make an actionable step, an actionable decision to get better from that. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I am on uh, on social media, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my handles are at Logan underscore Jones 95. Um, for sure, I welcome any collaboration uh, across the board. Like I think as as listeners kind of roll through our, our recording here and I'll, I'm open to any any discussion, um, any critique, any anything like that. I think um, we're all pulling uh, the rope in the same direction here. And I think that as, as performance professionals, as strength and conditioning coaches, as athletic trainers, as personal trainers, et cetera, whatever your domain is as a PT, like, I feel like the more that we can work together and share information and uh, do things like we're doing right now, uh, just talking through what it means to operate in this environment with this population we're all going to be, we're all going to be better because of it. And then this is, these are two relationships now that I have that I didn't have an hour ago. Um, and I, and I value that kind of thing, uh, far more than I do, um, opening up a textbook and learning about like the energy systems. I, I think a lot of that stuff is important for sure. Like, don't get me wrong. A lot of that stuff is important and, it, and it's the foundation for a lot of the, these significant changes that we're able to make as influencers, as coaches, um, as educators, but, I, I really encourage everyone to really like connect at a deeper level than just the surface of like, Hey dude, can you get me a job? Or Hey dude, can you get me an internship? Or, um, cause I, I feel like that we're in it for the long haul, uh, whether you work in strength and conditioning or in performance or as an educator for five years or, or 55 years, doesn't matter to me. I think we're all in this for deep down. We're all in it for the same reason. Uh, a lot of times we let these more surface level things like kind of distract and, and pull from, um, what's really important. So again, I, I thank you guys for your willingness to have me on. And, and I'm glad that you guys reached out and, and invited me on this morning. I, um, I always enjoy this kind of thing. And, and, uh, if there's ever anything I can do for either one of you guys or whoever, uh, please let me know. I, I'm here to help. So thanks so much. No, man, we really appreciate it. And just to kind of piggyback on what you said, man, is those relationships are key. I, especially now when I teach my, a lot of my undergrads, it's like, man, you, you don't know, who you know right now so get to know who them who you have because like 
Chris, when we met two years ago, who who would have fuck would have guessed we would have started a podcast? And now all the the connections and networks that we've had, and I'm super grateful for this motherfucker. Be like Adam, let's do a podcast because I would have never done it by myself. So I appreciate him, and it's it's amazing what you can do with you know great friendships and just great like like minded people and just building a great environment with you. So my man Logan, we appreciate your time and efforts. Um, and if you have anything out, oh, my bad. And if, again, we'll definitely stay in touch. We'll definitely try to have you on a part two, just continuously go into, you know, the rabbit hole of strength and conditioning in general. So um, that's all the smoke with Logan. If you got questions, concerns, you know where to find him and make sure you guys go get, give him a follow, my man. See you later, guys.